Welcome to the Two Cent Dad podcast, where we interview dads to discuss their journeys of intentional fatherhood while doing work they care about and living a life of purpose. I'm your host, Mike Sudik. Our strategy has been put all the activities in front of, of Colt, let him figure out what the right dose is. Don't try to think that we know the right amount of play that is supposed to be sufficient or enough in each of these circumstances. Teach him to find his own limits, to find his own level of enjoyment, and then just give him enough options to, to find something that, uh, that he'll enjoy. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by David Heinemeiner Hansen, or DHH, as most of you know him by. David is co-founder of Basecamp, inventor of Ruby on Rails, also a race car driver, New York Times bestselling author of the books Rework and Remote. David does not disappoint in this episode. As always, he challenges the status quo. He's very opinionated, but shares some very insightful knowledge in living life and raising kids. So without further further ado, let's get into the interview with David. So David, you're known as a best-selling author of multiple books, of running the very successful project management tool, Basecamp, uh, inventing Ruby on Rails, amongst other things. Um, but I'm just curious if maybe you could start by taking us way back to what is the very first thing you sold? What is the thing that you got started on this whole entrepreneurial journey of building companies, writing books? What is the very first thing that you actually sold? So the first thing I ever sold, uh, I think maybe there's, depends on whether you say sold or traded, because uh, I got into Magic the Gathering, the uh, card game. Uh, It's a trading card game, sort of, um, people used to play. And back in, when was that? Sometime in the 90s. I'm trying to remember the order here, but uh, I have sort of a lot of memories around the horse trading, (laughs) the card trading Mm -hmm. that went on in that, that... um, formed sort of a lot of uh, early memories about how to make deals and and put things together and give people what they want. Um, so I learned a lot from doing uh, doing that, especially since with a game like Magic Gathering, there's, there's a bunch of cards that are very sought after and subsequently very expensive, but it isn't necessarily always the cards that people want um, when they're trying to put something together. So I kind of started with a very modest deck uh, set of cards and then traded that all the way up until I had a collection of cards that were worth, I don't know, 50 times what I started with. So that was a, that was a really fun experience, a really fun summer. It was a very intense summer where I spent like uh, pretty much most of my uh, days trading cards and also playing them a little bit, but I, I found a lot of interest in, in the trading. Um, I'd say the other part of it uh, where I took some of those early memories about selling stuff with uh, pirate software, actually. Um, I used to run an um, electronic uh, bulletin board, a BBS, um, an elite BBS, as it was called, which was basically just trading pirate software, which gave me a lot of contacts in the uh, pirate software world. And back in the early to mid-90s, a way that a lot of this software was distributed was on CDs. People didn't have the bandwidth to download these things. So um, I kind of got sort of just hooked up with selling those. Um, and again, sort of just finding out uh, buy low, sell high, yeah. and um, getting the connections to get the goods closer to where they were being manufactured. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are two of the early formative experiences on, on, on making business. So how old are you at this point? I mean, are you... Grade school, middle this school. This is uh, when am I like thirteen to fifteen? Okay, something that something that range. I mean, I've been making my own money even before getting into commerce, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think earliest maybe I started at ten delivering newspapers. Um, quickly find out that um, sort of manual labor at a fixed rate was not necessarily the path. That I wanted to take to get me to where I wanted to go, selling a product in whatever form it is, or sort of arbitrage as it was with the trading cards, was uh, 
both more lucrative, more fun, and more engaging. So yeah, and it sounds like you get kind of like a thrill out of that. You know, you're kind of like learning how to figure out who's collecting what, what's scarcity, and and how do you turn that Absolutely. into a profit? Yeah. And marketing too. There was a lot of uh, salesmanship actually that went into the whole trading card game. It was a lot about uh, sort of the way you build um, or amass more wealth in the trading card game is that you you take something of lesser value and then you trade it to someone sort of even Steven for something of more value, right? Mm -hmm. Which basically puts you in the position of being the salesperson for the thing of lower value. Right. This card might not really be as valuable as this other card. That's not really what you're saying, but you're saying like, hey, this is really the card you need for your deck. This would really complete your deck and make it so much better. This is actually a really rare card. I don't know a lot of people around here has one. Like you just <laughs> try all the marketing techniques, which are really the same fundamental marketing techniques, um, scarcity, appeal to authority, um, popularity, all of the things that... Uh, are the root causes of uh, most desires in business. You can put to good use in, in any kind of selling, and, and trading card is a good a place as any to learn that. Sure. So you said you said that the you kind of had the lesson of manual labor was not for you. You know, delivering newspapers. That's one thing you hear from like you know some entrepreneurs that say you know I wish you know you really need to have a job where you have to do manual labor because it gives you an appreciation for you know, running your own business or even when you get into like something like software that's, you know, easier or more scalable or, you know, it's not a one for one trade off. Do you feel like that was pretty, you know, transformative for you to kind of teach you that lesson early? And then you, you were able to kind of move to a place where you're, 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 you're not doing a direct one for one trading hours for money thing. <laughs> Absolutely. I think everyone should work manual labor and I think everyone should work jobs that they hate for mm -hmm. some period of time, to give them those memories and those experiences of how things can be. And while it's important to do the thing on manual labor, sort of delivering newspapers, I worked at a grocery store, I did a lot of other stuff actually all the way through, even concurrently with doing these other things I was doing, I was still sort of having these jobs too, because it was sort of just a steady income mm -hmm. um, that you could always depend on. Yeah. But I... I think that was important, but even more important than that was to work for other people in the line of business that you want to pursue and have a bad experience doing so. The vast majority of lessons that I took away from working at the um, internet startup scene in Copenhagen in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s were just a treasure trove of things not to do and ways not to act and sort of ways not to configure your company, ways not to announce things, ways not to do cutbacks, ways not to invest. There weren't a whole lot of lessons necessarily about how, how to do things, but <laughs> I could get that from somewhere else. I think it's more, far more important to feel on your own body the effects of poor management. Yeah. If you are ever to pursue a career in some form of management, right? Because mm -hmm. I think a, a reason why I had a lot of these poor experiences was that the people who were running these companies that I were part of, they had never worked for someone else in this. Like they were first time at it uh, from a vantage point of considerable power and influence. They were at the top of the stack and they didn't know how it felt to be the subjects of that. Right. Yeah. And that led to some lots of scenarios where you just go like, dude, can't you see how this is making us feel as employees, that this is just a shitty way of conducting yourself or instituting change? So I really took a lot away from that, which to this day continues to inform how I do everything at Basecamp. Um, always thinking like, oh, if I was on the other side, if I was sitting and sort of getting this piece of information in this way, how would I feel about that or instituting this change? Um, constantly thinking like, hey, remember when I was on the other side? Remember how it felt? And mm -hmm. that's just incredibly valuable. Yeah, definitely. No, I can definitely see that. I mean, that's, that is rare to have, it's almost an empathy, you know, for the people that you're working for you because you've been there. But how do you... Yeah, and I think that that empathy is is... Some people have a lot of sort of just natural empathy, and that's great. But in my mind, there's nothing more powerful than immediate empathy that comes from experience of being in the same situation under the same circumstances. Yeah. Um, because it's not imagined. 
I can just pull back in the memory bank and think of a thousand cases. Well, not a thousand. Lots of cases where I was subject to similar things. And, oh, remember? Oh, yeah, they did a really poor job on this because A, B, C, and D. Well, I'm not going to f*** it up on A, B, C, and D. I might f*** it up in all sorts of new and novel ways that I didn't uh, <laughs> experience myself. But at least I can sort of cut down on the most obvious uh, blunders that most people who have not been subject to management from other people go through when, when they become managers. Right. And so you're shortcutting your way to success in a lot of ways because you're not having to go through all those failures. Yeah, I mean, so, it is the basics of yeah. experience. Like having experience with other people's poor decisions hopefully informs you to perform better and have less poor outcomes as a result. Yeah. So, so as you go through those experiences, you're obviously, you know, kind of learning, saying, okay, I'm, I'm working for this guy and he's doing a bad job managing, or, you know, they, they made all these mistakes. You're kind of cataloging those in your mind saying, you know, I'm kind of learning from that, but you're, I would imagine it sounds like you were intentionally kind of studying these people and, and understanding that. Did you, did you go into, I mean, did you have a, an earlier knowledge saying, I want to kind of work for myself eventually? Is that something that was like instilled with you and your parents? Like, where did you get that drive or was it surely that you had such bad experiences that you're like, I have to work for myself? <laughs> I think part of what informed this was indeed those bad experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and they just gave me a sense of, of thinking, if I can see all the things that are wrong here, mm -hmm. um, I think I have a better shot at doing this better. Like if I was in your shoes, like I'd be doing a better job right now. I'm not, so we're not. And that just pisses me off. Like I can't, I have a hard time seeing things that could be better, not being better. And mm -hmm. there's just only so much you could do. Like at most of these companies, I was at the lowest rung, right? Like I was sort of at the entry level. So I knew, well, I learned that the amount of influence uh, and impact that I could have from the bottom of the organization was limited. Mm -hmm. That I could have a bunch of better ideas about how to do things, but if I was at the entry level in the organization, like, I was not setting the tone. Like I, it was not my call, and I couldn't sit well with that. I mean, I'm I'm a poor employee in a lot of ways, and and many of those ways is because uh, I just I can't deal with uh, things that could be better that aren't made better. Um, and I just sit with that knowledge, thinking like, what the f like. I know how this should be better. I know how we could do it better. We're not doing it better because nobody's going to give a shit what I have to say about things, right? Yeah. So the only way to make sure that people give a shit about what you have to say about things is, well, is your thing. That yeah. was a deep thing. That's a sort of defensive strategy, and, and perhaps that's particular to my experience. If, on the other hand, I had had the experience that uh, I'd started working at these companies and they were greatly run and I'd had a lot of success, perhaps... Yes, I, I wouldn't have had as much of a motivation to strike out on my own, which I think is why a lot of entrepreneurs that I know, they there's something in their formative experiences that sort of ticks them off, pisses them off, actually, um, where they sort of think like, well, I can do this better. And if you don't have those experiences, if you actually enter things that are working, that are working, and people are making good, sound decisions, and you go like, "Yeah, that's really cool. We're in the right direction." I can totally see how you wouldn't be instilled with this need to do things yourself, to control yeah. things yourself. Yeah. Is that um, you know you said formative experiences in employment? Do you feel like there was formative experiences when you were growing up, like as a kid, that kind of gave you that context? I mean, my dad was an entrepreneur, so I kind of followed that path to some extent, but he always kind of was starting things. You know, he he seemed like was always kind of exploring these different opportunities. So I felt like that, I feel like that kind of shaped my view and the, the path that I took. So I was always kind of thinking, you know, when I even want to work for people, it's like I had some of those thoughts that you had. So it's like I, I attribute that back to, I think, you know, some of my formative years, but seeing that somewhat modeled, just kind of curious, like what, you know, what did your yeah, parents it, do? It, I mean, what, how do you right. feel like that? It, it's that it's funny because in many ways it's the same formative experiences as I saw a shitty job being mm -hmm. done. Like, so my dad was, uh, wheeling and dealing things too. Uh, he was fixing electronics for people. Um, 
And while there were some influences of sort of putting a good deal together and so on, most of the influences was, dude, you have a terrible management of cash flow. Dude, Mm -hmm. you don't have a, a deal pipeline that makes any sense. The unit sort of approach in these things makes no sense. Like it, a lot of it was basically seeing mismanagement again, right? Yeah. Seeing things just done poorly. Uh, perhaps not realizing at the time, uh, but coming to that realization that yeah, this was a, a poor ma- way to make a living, not a consistent way to do it, and uh, just a, 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 a poor leverage. Like one unit in, sometimes like half a unit out. And you mm-hmm. just go like, what? Um, well, I just went. Eventually, what? Like, I don't want to do that. I mean, yeah. In many ways, the same setup as going through manual labor, right? Like, you put one in and you get one out, and you just go like, yeah, those are not the, that's not the magic box that I want to keep putting stuff into. I want to put stuff in where I put one in and get 1,000 out, or I put one in and get 10,000 out. Uh, how can I set myself up to have that kind of leverage? Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that doesn't mean there weren't other role models. I mean, I, I had plenty of things to look at um, in literature and, and elsewhere to find the inspiration about how to do things well. Because I think, while I do think it's more important in many ways to see things done poorly, it's also important to have some direction of how things could be done well. Um, sure. How do you, so the other, just to hit on the, the kind of upbringing thing, the other big thing it seems like you have a lot of is confidence just to say that, hey, I'm going to, I think I could do this better. So that's, that takes a lot of kind of self-assurance and saying like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try this and, and I'm going to go out there and, and do a better job than these guys because I've already learned the lessons, but I have enough confidence to step out and say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of do it. And I know that it, you, I think you had in the past in other interviews said like, you have a low, actually a really low risk tolerance because you, you make pretty sound decisions based on what you've seen in the past. Um, but th- back to the self-confidence thing, it's like, do you, do you feel like that, that there were things in your life early on that kind of taught you that? Or you kind of always had that? Like, um, because, in, you know, in parenting, that's a teaching kids kind of self-confidence is that are there yes. things that you felt like was, was big in your life that, that gave you that? Absolutely. I think especially my mom was uh, an incredible sort of pep talk coach. Um, and there was never any pressure for me to feel bad about, especially around schooling. Um, lots of parents would like, well, you've got to do your homework, or you got to get certain, certain grades, or your performance in school is tied to our evaluation of you as a person and by infliction or indirection our love and that was never the case there was never a link like that um which basically just instilled in me the sense that well i can do whatever i want like the affection and love that i receive is not contingent on that um so in some cases that meant blowing things off in some cases that meant doing very poorly in a variety of subjects that I didn't care for at that specific moment in time. Um, getting flunking classes. Um, not only flunking classes, what I like even more was doing the math on exactly how much I could skip German language education and not get suspended. I think you could have like <laughs> 21% uh, absentee. So I sort of calculated out what 21% meant and like how many of the early classes could I skip and still dodge under the 21%. And I think uh, I got within like a class of two. Like I think I had like (laughs) 20.7 or something at the end, right? Um, That's efficiency. That's efficiency right there. (laughs) It it really is efficiency. And where I used that efficiency was then I translated all the things that I didn't want to spend any time on and did not spend any time on like German language education and uh, in some years, math, and then I invested all that time in something else that I cared about much more deeply, like running my own elite bulletin board, like starting my own gaming website at 15 or 16, and running things that I cared about, not because some report card was going to score me well, like certainly weren't, and it was going to score me worse off for it, but I had the confidence... um, from an 
uh, a love that wasn't contingent on results or following the path that my parents wanted me to follow, that I could do that. And I, I really, I do think that that is probably one of the best aspects of what I learned growing up. Yeah. That um, part of it too was the, the fact that I've written about recently, like we were poor by any definition of Danish society, but it didn't feel like it. Partly that's because Denmark is pretty damn awesome at making people who are poor much better off than poor mm -hmm. people in most the rest of the world. I think Denmark is pretty much at the top of, of doing that very well. Um, and part of it was also, again, especially my, my mother, arranging things in such a way that A, we didn't feel any loss from that. Okay, so we couldn't buy all the things. Nope. Okay. Um, but still, we could have enough of the things that it felt like we were in touch with the other, the social circle. So I could still hang out with kids that weren't poor at all and not feel like a, I was an outcast or that we lived a much worse life. Actually, in fact, in many ways, I had the experience of, of thinking those kids that might have been better off, like, I don't want to trade with you. Like, yeah. I don't want your parents. Like, I'll take my parents that are far worse off rather than have your parents who are far better off but treat you in these ways that are not how I would want to be treated. Right, right. right. So I think that gave me also an appreciation of just the limits of material success. Um, and thus, by sort of direction of that, or, or through that, learning that, okay, well, it doesn't really, like, if I don't finish well in school in a certain number of subjects and that means I can't be a doctor or lawyer or whatever, so what? Yeah. Like that, it's not going to define me. I'm going to live a great life regardless um so let me just pursue the things that i really care about the things that i'm really passionate about and if they turn out to be things that are something that leads to quote unquote success then that's great and if it doesn't then that's also great um yeah. and my happiness is not tied to those things which i think is incredibly important for me now looking at things of raising children is that I want to make sure that I pass that on, especially since we're in such a different situation, right? Like I am now like ludicrously wealthy compared to where we were when I grew up, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what I've seen is a lot of parents who go through that transition, they end up with some very distorted views of the world that they then pass off and then their kids grow up to be not like they were and not appreciating the same things and, and so forth. And yeah. Uh, overestimating, oh, I didn't have like all the toys when I was a kid, so my kids are going to have all the toys that they could possibly have because <laughs> that's the thing that defines happiness. And you just go like, eh, no. How, so how are you practically doing that? Because, I mean, that's it seems like it'd be a hard thing to do. I mean, especially, I mean, it's a mindset, but it's a, it, it has to be a little bit more intentional almost to limit that and not to give them that mindset or spoil them, you know? Yeah, it's funny because there's two sides of that. One is this whole notion of spoiling, mm -hmm. um, which I have all sorts of problems with as well. Um, <laughs> because it's sort of this artificial scarcity. There's a lot of people say like, oh, well, you make sure you don't like give your kids everything that they want, right? Because they need to learn how to work for things themselves. And like, that's the true grit and so on. And I just go like, actually, no, that's not my experience. Like, that's not how, like, that's not the key things that I took away of being good about my childhood, that I had to sort of pass newspapers around to buy the toys that I wanted. Like, if I was going to take anything away from that, like, certainly wasn't that aspect of it. That isn't the thing I want to pass on. Um, I'd much rather pass on this notion that it just doesn't matter that much. Like, you can have all the toys in the world that doesn't make you a happy kid. Right. You can, you can be allowed to have all these things, and again, it doesn't make you a happy kid. And... It certainly does not make you a happy adult. The number of adults that I know who have quote unquote everything and are still not the happiest people on earth, um, there's a great overlap between those groups. So what's more important for me is to instill a sense and cultivate a sense of the things that really matter. And to me, the things that really matter is being passionate about things as in you want to do them for their own intrinsic motivation, not for the extrinsic stuff. And that's why I think the spoiling part, like the 
over anxiety about spoiling your kids, then you trick that in. Oh, well, I mean, I'm really going to teach my kids that hard work is the path to a successful and great life, right? So, okay, if you do the dishes and you do these things, then you're going to get this thing. It's just setting things up in a, a reward cycle that I think is not only think, but have since been uh, well-informed by people who actually study this stuff, that that is actually a really bad mechanic. Um, a way of teaching uh, people self-reliance and happiness and so on it doesn't happen by setting up these uh, carrot reward cycles where you're you have these, uh, these carrots that kick in when they do things they don't want to do. In fact, that's the last thing I want to teach my kids. The last thing I want to teach them, my kids is that, oh, just do all these things that are actually really shitty that you actually don't really want to do <laughs> because then you can get these things that you think you want even though you realize that actually they don't matter that much. Right? Right, So right. that's how I've ended up basically having a sort of a notion that spoiling in terms of like toys or whatever that is not something I'm going to worry about at least not in a material sense so if Colt wants a toy car like you can have a toy car like just it, a toy car might cost four dollars right mm -hmm. I could totally see like someone thinking like well I mean they should learn to sort of assess the money to learn the value of money and then they should buy that stuff themselves and I just go like no it just it doesn't matter. Like that's not the most important lesson here. Like he wants to play with ten toy cars, and I have to buy ten toy cars at four dollars each or whatever. Um, okay. Like how does that matter? Like so. Anyway, that that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it that I found is that I pretty strong believer sometimes to my own detriment of, of my happiness in the short term of letting kids figure out their own limits. So another sort of parenting thing is like, oh, how much screen time do you allow your kids to have? How much time can they sit in front of an iPad to do it? And my general principle there is you can sit in front of an iPad as long as you want and until you're tired of it. And know what happens? They get tired of it. At least that's what happened in the case of my son, right? Like when he first got an iPad, he was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And he was on it for, I don't know, three hours or four hours a day, far beyond the limit of what all sorts of clever people supposedly say is, oh, you should limit uh, screen time to one hour a day. Why would I want to build up a sense of scarcity that, like, this is scarcity in all promotes it. Increases <laughs> demand, right? Yeah, like, exactly. I'm going to think it's more valuable. I'm going to want to do it more when I can have it less. Yeah. So, our strategy, at least in the, in the broad sense of it, have been you just play your iPad as much as you want. And what happened? There was an intense phase of using the iPad a ton. And then there was a phase of realizing, actually, I'm done with this. I'm bored. Let's play with some toy cars, build some Legos, but that's, run yeah, around outside. But that's predicated on those other things being available and you somewhat promoting those other things. Right. Yes. I mean, yes. it's, it's yes. you have to uh, uh, yes. also offer the the better alternatives because I think those are more fulfilling in the end. I mean, I see that with my kids. You know, it's like they'll play with the iPad and they're like glazed over and they might watch a show or two. But like my son, when he's playing with Legos, he's like into it. He's asking me to come play with him. And it's like yep. you can see that he enjoys it better because it's not just mushing his brain. I mean – I let them. I, I'm not. I'm not I mean, yeah. <laughs> my aspect is too that it doesn't mush their brains that much. Like I played an ungodly amount of video games growing up, and I want to make sure that Colt plays at least a fair share of that. So in my mind, uh, it's actually it's very important for him to get his daily dose of electronic <laughs> entertainment. Uh, I am certainly not. Oh, you can only play with the ecologic Lego tree stuffs here, and then like that's what's going to teach you how to be a wholesome person. I mean. Come on, give me a f***ing break. So that being said, like, I want to f for him to just figure out, like, what do you enjoy doing? W what, are you what are your natural limits? And as you say, it totally predicates on having the choices available, right? One of the studies that come to mind with this is um, there was a famous study on uh, cocaine addiction where there were some lap rats running around inside a cage where it just has this dispensary of uh, cocaine. And the big conclusion from that study was, well, 
left to its own devices. The rodent will go for the cocaine and eat it until it dies. And you go like, oh, this is so horrible. Like if, if someone has cocaine available, they'll just take cocaine until they die, right? And for a very long time, that study stood undisputed. And then I think in the mid-2000s, there was another study that came out that basically said, yeah, but if cocaine is in one of those dispensers and then in the same room, there's also a spinning wheel, there's some water for them to splash in, there's other rodents to play with, guess what? They don't just eat cocaine until they die. They do other things too, right? And I think that that's the parallel that I uh, like to point this to is if the iPad supposedly is cocaine, um, yes, if that's the only thing you put in, like the choices to be is, is either you play with your iPad or you're bored out of your mind. Yeah, people are going to or kids are going to play with their <laughs> iPad all day long. But if the choice is play with your iPad, uh, play with your cars, read a bunch of books, run around outside, uh, watch a show, help cooking, help do other things, help run to the store, help do any of this variety or buffet of activities, right? Well, they're not just going to ki- pick the thing that, quote unquote, must their mind. Yeah. And, well, I think and that's, I mean, again, all this stuff is sample size two. Me remembering my own childhood and me watching one kid grow up. And then, I mean, slightly informed by the uh, academic studies that I read that I'm sure is also biased towards reading things that tell in the biases that I already have. But still, um, that's not to say there aren't other kids that would just, if given the choice, have an iPad and then just mush their brains out. Maybe, maybe that happens. Well, well, they're they're doing that in a room where maybe they're doing it like in their own bedroom where they're not, I mean, where their parents aren't cooking or they're not, you're modeling to those things that you find value in. I mean, you find value in the video games, but you also find value maybe in cooking or, you know, race car driving as you do. And it's like, if you don't have that, then yeah, it's the cocaine scenario. But you're also, it's not that it's available. I feel like it's almost predicated on modeling it and finding enjoyment and satisfaction in it, you know, in those other activities. Uh, our strategy has been put all the t- activities in front of, of Colt, let him figure out what the right dose is. Don't try to think that we know the right amount of play that is supposed to be sufficient or enough in each of these circumstances. Teach him to find his own limits, to find his own level of enjoyment, and then just give him enough options to, to find something that uh, that he'll enjoy. I'd ten times rather have him sit with a smile on his face playing the iPad than him with a frown on his face playing with some stupid shit that I gave him that I wanted him to play with because that fulfilled my notion of what is supposed to be wholesome play, right? I mean, talk about the tyranny of, uh, of parental choices. Um, and, I mean, uh, it serves us well, too, that maybe it's because uh, our genes are cultivated by this, but he's having none of it. <laughs> so whenever we try to dictate or superimpose our choices on it, he's pretty quick to say, I don't like those choices. <laughs> Actually, that's the literal quote. I don't like those choices. Um, so I, I feel like that's it's pretty well instilled already. So even if we shouldn't have been on board with this, maybe we would have gotten on board with it simple because that's his personality. And you, you, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, I, I take it then. <laughs> no, I, I think that is, uh, that's quite apt. Which um, is, it's a really funny thing because, especially with small kids, uh, you just go like, how much nurture could already have influenced this? You just go like, there's, I mean, the genes are playing a role here. And there is something that's just mapped out from pretty early age in terms of stubbornness and um, sort of desire to walk to your own beat and and so forth and just go like that's it's interesting and i mean we saw that even from him being like one year old where you just go like that can't be that much cultural (laughs) influence that dictates that when he just runs off and he wants to do something on his own he doesn't even look back at us right right? like it just that fearlessness that that some kids have um which i mean i'm sure that's not a universally good thing. If you're out in the jungle, that perhaps that's the thing that gets you eaten by a tiger. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. No, that's. I think it's so fascinating, and I think it'll be because you, you have a second one on the way, right? So that that's like really fascinating when you see both of them. Like when my daughter was born, and they were, my son and my daughter are pretty different in personality, and it's so interesting to see them interact and how early on that was so different. Um, right. But they get along well, but they're just way different personalities, and. It's just, I think it's so fascinating. You know, the nature nurture thing is is crazy. I mean, one of the things, the examples is funny. You're talking, it's like 
the my my daughter is actually more you know just self-assured self-reliant and my son is more just kind of he'll go along with the flow so she'll kind of take advantage of him in some ways like she'll come just like rip a toy out of his hand and he'll just be like okay whatever you know and it's like you, you kind of have to be like you, you know you can't, you, she doesn't have to do that you know like you can say you don't have like you kind of have to correct it a little bit but at the same time you know you kind of let them kind of sort that out you know like he you know he might not let her do that all the time but sometimes he'll be like, he'll stick up for himself and he'll go grab it back, you know? So you got to right. just let them kind of sort out and learn, you know, which is really interesting. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm curious to see how it's going to shake out. Uh, got like uh, another month to go and then uh, there'll be two of them. That's great. So curious, you know, your have your wife and you always been on the same page with this style of parenting and some of your thoughts and, and stuff? Yes, actually, in in very large terms, mm-hmm. surprisingly on um, on a similar foot here, um, we have biases that tilt very much in the same direction and um, read the same sort of studies and come to the same conclusions in in those kinds of uh, discussions. Um, so there really hasn't been a lot of a, a conflict there, which I'm happy. I <laughs> I think that. Uh, I could just imagine, like, if you have a style where, like, well, you do want to impose your sense of, like, what proper play is or any of these other things that aren't as much as just going with what your kid wants to do, um, that could lead to more of a more of a conflict. So we've thankfully been spared that. It's hard enough even when you do agree to um, sort of deal with a kid. Like, oh, they yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah, I hear you on that one, definitely. Um, so you mentioned some of the studies that you guys kind of have read, you know, that cocaine study that you talked about. What are some other, like, books or papers or, you know, thinkers out there that have influenced your parenting style? I think um, the main one is a guy, Alfie Cohen, um, who's written a ton of books. He does uh, all sorts of studies on kids and learning styles and and so forth um and many of the topics that we've been talking about like it's almost like taken out of the book titles that he has he has a a good book uh, called the myth of the spoiled child <laughs> so you can see some of the uh, yeah. <laughs> stuff we've been talking about there um he has another one called punished by rewards um which this isn't all just to do with kids, uh, punished by rewards in particular has informed a lot of what I think about uh, employees and employer relationships as well, um, alongside sort of this notion of intrinsic motivation and how important it is to protect that. Um, on the topic of intrinsic motivation, there's a great bo- book called Flow by Mikhail, and then I can't pronounce his uh, last name, but um, that book on Flow is just a great dive into why it makes us so happy to be intrinsically motivated by the passions and things we're interested in and getting better. Um, many of the reasons why I came to enjoy programming and I came to enjoy racing cars and other activities where you can fall into this flow, as called this trance, this zone where you lose track of time and space. Um, and I think that that's that's been such an important source of my happiness that I want to make sure that Colt gets this really early on, that uh, where he invests his time is is things that are intrinsically motivating, not because some teacher is going to grade him on it, not because I'm going to say, oh, what a good kid you are if you do these things, not, if he's, not because he's going to make money off it, not of any of these extrinsic motivators. Um, because I think the schooling system in most of the Western world, does its very best at destroying intrinsic motivation. It does its very best at reducing learning to a game of getting good grades. Um, And you really have to counteract that force. And in my opinion, start early with that counteract if if you want to have any shot at uh, giving your kids the defenses that they need to protect their own psyche and their own motivations and so forth. Um, I think that's uh, one of the things that uh, uh, both my my wife and I have been seeing and vividly remember uh, sort of how much of the learning 
during the schooling years is reduced to, oh, I just want to beat the test um, and teach to the test and so on. When you then come out on the other side realizing, well, how much of all the stuff that I crammed to learn to beat this test can I either still remember or can I implore or am I even interested in? It's, um, it's, it's a very good way of turning people off continued learning for the rest of their life. When you reduce learning to this thing that you do for other people, you do it to please your teachers or your parents or whatever. And no sorry, don't want any of that. Want to protect Colt's um, intrinsic motivation the very, very best that, that I can. And I mean, even knowing that you're up against forces that are in many cases much stronger than yourself. So you can just do your best to, to give them a shield to, to hopefully counteract it. Definitely. So what are you guys doing for education then? I mean, is, um, beyond you know, when he gets into schooling age, are you guys, is there a special school you send him to or you homeschool or what, what does that look like for, the, for that stage? Yeah, so one of the main things that... Um, I find funny is a lot of people in tech, uh, especially people in the sort of San Francisco area and that sort of aspect of the tech scene are very much like, oh, this STEM research and getting people started or getting kids started really early on. And like, I got to get them into Harvard. I got to get them into Stanford. I got to get into these elite institutions. And then I think of my experience and, and my wife had a similar experience. Like we did not go to top tier schools. We did not go to top tier universities. We did not get a quote unquote top tier education or not education schooling. But we got a top tier education in many ways. And it was because we cared to sort of nurture that education that we took away. That it's far more important to be someone who's fully engaged in learning everything there is to learn about a certain subject at Podunk University than it is to be someone who's completely dis- disillusioned and jaded going to Stanford. Yeah. I mean, that's a dichotomy. It doesn't have to be that stark. But I think there's truth to when you set things up, and, and I've heard this, we've heard this, uh, think about uh, even just preschools talking to kids. Like, oh, yeah, so if you want to get into this preschool, like, please uh, apply 12 months in advance. There's this 12-paper application process, and we'd like to see your all for an interview. And I just <laughs> go like, are you f***ing kidding me? Like, what I want Colt to do at three or four or five-year-olds is run around, bump into things, jump off tall stuff and kind of hurt himself and otherwise just have a blast. Um, but he's going to be behind, David. He's going to be way behind that. the rest of the pack. Exactly, I mean. <laughs> right? Exactly. This is the... It just sometimes just blows my head where I just go like, you're seriously f***ing telling me that at kid's age four, you're thinking about which university he's going to get into by pick of which preschool he goes to? Holy shit your life is hell and I would not want it for all the good in the world. It's just <laughs> like people in this situation probably think like, oh, this is what I have to do. It's such a competitive world. Have you seen the Chinese? They're studying like crazy. They're turning out so many engineers. We're fucked, right? <laughs> and I just go like, oh, mother. Like that is what living in fear is like. What a miserable experience. And how can we not have that experience? In fact, um, we just had this experience here in Spain. So Colt started in a Montessori school, which I think there's otherwise a ton of good things about Montessori, and they have a lot of the right ideas. Well, this particular incarnation of the Montessori school was started by some Brits who also had the British influence of respect is very important. You should have respect for your teeth. Like, literally, that was their key word. Like, if they had tried to sum up the whole school, like, the one word they picked was respect. And I just went, like, that should have set up alarm bells as loud as anything because respect is probably the last word that I am interested in when we're talking about a three-year-old. <laughs> I don't want this for the three-year-old to respect for anything. Like that is very, very low on the list of priorities that I have for a three-year-old, right? Is respect. So uh, fast forward, <laughs> this was not a good fit for Colt. Um, he did not suitably respect his teachers. So he didn't have a good time. Um, because he wasn't this docile kid that just did everything that they wanted him to do at the times that they wanted him to do without pro- protest, right? So mm. he protested, 
<laughs> loudly. And we came to the realization that, yeah, this wasn't the right school. So we took him to another school where the key word was not respect, <laughs> where, the, where the teachers um, were a little more interested in just having three-year-olds and four-year-olds run around and be three- and four-year-olds. And lo and behold, he's thriving, doing great, and um, everything is wonderful, as wonderful as three- and four-year-olds can be, which is like complete maniacs the one second and the cutest things on earth the next second. So you still have the Jekyll and Hyde thing. But um, yeah, so that only reinforces the whole setup, right? That um, like, so being left behind as a three-year-old, like what? Like what is it that you're going to learn from grade one to grade 10 that is so damn important that it's going to dictate the rest of your life if you aren't at the head of the pack? Bullshit, nothing. You just need to learn to read and write and most importantly develop a love of learning that you will carry forth with you. And uh, that's it. Oh, well, then the kid won't get into the most prestigious college. So what? Right? Yeah, what does that matter? uh, The correlation that I've seen between people who went through elite schooling and happy people, poor. In many cases, I'd say negative. Yeah. So... Um, the whole thing we're trying to set up is, is how do you live a good life? How do you have a happy, good life? Having a happy, good life, um, as I said, I believe very vaguely and poorly correlated with quote unquote top tier education. Um, very vaguely and poorly related with making all the money in the world and so on. Um, and then people say, well, there's these of you to say you, you made yours and so on and so forth. Yeah, I did at after age 26 and then I had like up until 26 where I did none of those things and had none of those things and I was a pretty happy kid again some of this is situational some of this is societal you're going to have a worse time being a poor kid in the US I guarantee you that Um, so I get where some of the um, anxieties come from that does not make them productive so at least being upfront about what your fears are and, and so forth, I think would be a step forward. So what, I mean, we, just to kind of bring it to a close, I mean, the, see, what, you know, what are the, some of the things that you would say to someone that's new, a new parent? You know, it sounds like what you're saying a lot of is starts at, you know, in, at the individual level, starts at the parent's level. I mean, having that, having that intrinsic drive, having that appreciation for a good life and not just chasing carrots, but you know, if you if you were to give some pieces of advice, like one or two, you know, nuggets of advice to a guy that comes to you and says, "Hey, David, you know, I just found out my wife's pregnant. I'm gonna be having a baby here in about nine months." And you know, what, what David, how, how, how what, what you got? You got one kid. What do you, you know, what, what can you tell me? You know, what what do you say to that guy? Sure, I would uh, give him a reading list or her a reading list um, of books that help explain these arguments in very clear terms and I think the myth of the spoiled child punished by rewards and stoicism the guide to a good life that's a great start Mm -hmm. right there Um, and I think taking some of this pressure out of it I think there's just a lot of parents who feel like a lot of intense pressure very early on like oh I gotta get the best for my kid oh I gotta get the best for my kid and they don't see the systemic risks in uh, seeking this quote-unquote best for your kid, um, the definition of what best is matters quite a lot. And if the definition of best in, in your particular cases gets a high-paying job or gets an Ivy League education or something like that, like you're already f***ed. Like you're already off into the weeds. Um, those might be means to some end. I don't think they're a means to very many important ends. But even if they are, they're still mean. Like, figure out what the end is. And for me, it's, um, I want Cole to have the happiest life he can have. And the road that lives to that, or leads to that is, is again, poorly correlated with these other traditional factors of, uh, of success. Um, so, yeah, just chill out. <laughs> Calm down. Again, this is sort of from my perspective, and my perspective does not include someone who lives on $18,000 a year in the U.S. and can't afford health care or feeding their kids. Like, that's the case, I mean, freak out. 
by all means. Although <laughs> I don't think that necessarily helps, but you have a different life circumstances than me, and and I don't know if I can help that much. Um, I, I think there's a sort of a, a radius where your experiences are more applicable to other people. And my radius is um, more with people who have sort of the core comforts of life squared away. Mm-hmm. Um, so the further you get away from that, the, uh, the less it may apply or that other things might be more important. Um, still, I don't think that... Uh, what, one last thing I'd say is, is um, it's been a great... Uh, se- uh, sets of studies and I think there's even a book and it was summarized and I'm trying to remember who published this about the um, suicide rings in um, near San Francisco in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. um, that I thought were extremely informative that uh, the pressure that kids talk about coming out of those environments of quote unquote the best schooling with the sort of most achieving parents and so on are horrible all sorts of studies coming out saying that kids from that sector, like they're um, they're just as bad with crime, although the crime tends to be more less sort of petty theft or violence, and more in the case of um, sort of drugs and abuse and all sorts of other sort of delinquent behavior, so to speak, to as coping mechanisms to deal with this intense pressure of having uh, parents that are intent that a successful life goes through an education at Stanford and a job at Google and working on life-altering things. Um, it was, uh, maybe you can find it for the show notes, but I thought yeah. that was a, just a great summary of all these things that are bad about quote-unquote ambition. Yeah, definitely. They, it's, it's so much built up on something to lose. It, I mean, it seems like and yes. that's what, I mean, you, it seems like your background, it was like coming from more humble beginnings, you didn't have this pressure that there's something to lose. But not only that, you saw the the lifestyle of the, quote, you know, successful people and said, I don't really like that. You know, that's not necessarily something I want to maintain. <laughs> and I yeah, can and appreciate I it. <laughs> this whole notion of something to lose comes from a position of something or fear. Mm-hmm. And when your parenting style or direction in life is driven by fear, you've already shut off many of the important parts of your brain and reduced it to this lizard mode, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And there are far more interesting things to pursue in this world when you can liberate your mind from the change of fear and just get into a little bit of logic, a little bit of passion, a little bit of more positive emotions um, and get rid of the fear. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Thanks for listening to the show. You can find out more about us and sign up to receive updates at twocentdad.com. If you liked what you heard or just want to say hi, you can shoot me an email at mike at twocentdad.com. Please leave a review on iTunes if you like the show. It helps us to get the word out to the most people possible. The podcast production is done by Maria Van Dyken, and the show is made possible through the support of EC Group International, building software teams since 1999.